Boss Uncaged is a weekly podcast that releases the origin stories of business owners and entrepreneurs as they become uncaged trailblazers. In each episode, our hosts, S.A. Grant and guests construct narrative accounts of their collective business journeys and growth strategies. Learn key success habits and how to stay motivated through failure, all while developing a boss uncaged mindset. Break out of your cage and welcome our host, S.A. Grant. Welcome, welcome back to Boss Uncaged Podcast. So today's show is, is we're going to be talking a lot about real estate, but you know, real estate more so from the investment standpoint. And, and this individual, it's kind of like hearing his background, hearing the story is definitely a fascinating story. And, um, you know, kind of looking at his, his subtitle, having like 1 billion assets under management. So we're definitely going to, going to dive into that. And as you guys know, I like to give whoever I'm interviewing a particular nickname. So the nickname for this boss is going to be the syndicator boss. So Lane, the floor is yours. Why don't you talk about who you are and what are we going to be talking about today? a little bit yeah so today um you know we, we own over a billion dollars of assets under management that's no prize of a little bit over 7700 rental units we buy mostly apartments um and you know done over 50 deals thus far uh, but it always didn't always start off with that and you know we always kind of want to bring it down to something practical instead of just the big vanity metrics um, my kind of story began um, I grew up in a family where we're taught to be really frugal with our money, go to school, study hard, invest in all the 401k nonsense and buy a house to live in. Uh, I call this the linear path of like a lot of middle class families go up on. Uh, I went to school, um, became an engineer, started working, and then just kind of followed that path to buy a house to live in. Um, but because I was traveling all the time for work, as most young professionals do, I decided to the hell rent it out, right? It makes a little side change on the side. And I was, this was like in my early 20s back in 2009. And I was like, whoa, this stuff is pretty powerful. And I, and I got a taste of this simple passive cash flow. And from there, that was kind of when I, I, I got off that linear path and started to just buy more and more rental properties from there on. Definitely very interesting. I mean, and I think like the model that, that you're running is more of the the syndicator, and that's why I call you the syndication boss. So I want you to kind of like define that for like the average person, the layman person that doesn't know anything about real estate. Like, what is that? I mean, how, how do you define that, and how is that useful in real estate? Yeah, I mean, I think you know people understand you know stocks, right? Stocks you know, as a piece of a company, um, but that's more on the retail market. You know, when you start to syndicate smaller companies or even smaller, you know, venture capital is more like you're getting a bunch of big guys, but syndication is think of it more like crowdfunding, where you're getting individual investors in the private equity space. So private equity can mean a variety of things, but you know, you, it can be just regular people with you know a million dollars net worth, and they put in fifty, a hundred grand, and you get a hundred, a couple hundred of these guys together, and you have a general partnership group that you know, in this case, you know, we buy real estate. You know, together passive investors which you're not going to go out and do like a big stock market kind of thing where you go to the masses but you're going to go to like a private equity group of, of individuals to kind of raise the capital and do it that way so another way is just you know, it's a country club deal if you think gotcha. about it like that cool so essentially you're leveraging multiple different individuals to particularly buy more keys right so you're not talking about like a two two key thing you're talking about more like 20 30 keys like how many keys are you usually trying to purchase with that that group yeah i mean whether you're syndicating you know real estate or whatever to me like usually all the paperwork for the syndication stuff can range from like 10 grand to 20 grand hmm. so you know my opinion unless you're going to raise a couple million dollars plus it's really you know, it's not really worth it right to go buy a million dollar property and to pay all those legal fees to do it. So we normally buy properties between fifty to hundred thousand dollars a door. So you, know, you do the math. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we're looking at like a hundred, two hundred, three hundred, four hundred unit apartment complexes uh, for it to kind of make sense. And then you know, this is where we kind of get the nice thing is like you know, our, our idea is like we stay above the mom and pop retail investor, right? The person buying a single family home, obviously, but duplex, triplex, all the way up to 40 unit, 50 unit, 100 units property. These are the amateurs doing the stuff. The pricing is horrible. We want to stay above that cut. Def but we want to stay definitely below like the big institutional operators that are just kind of investing all of our lazy retirement money in the, in the stock market, you know, Wall Street companies. 
So there's a nice little sweet spot between, you know, maybe a five, $10 million acquisition hmm. and like a 50, $100 million acquisition. Hmm. So when you do what you're doing, do you guys leverage wholesalers in any part of that? Um, you know, wholesalers is what you do in like the single family home world, right? Mm-hmm. If people don't know what a wholesaler is, you know, they write these little lame letters and you know, direct market to unsophisticated homeowners who are kind of down on their luck. I personally think that's a little unethical, right? Because you go, they go after these guys who are suffering from the four D's death, despair, divorce, and mm-hmm. you know, they're, they're a dumbass. Some of these guys, right? They're going to take 50 cents on the dollar when they could just go to a realtor and get 80 cents on the dollar, even if their property is all messed up. Um, we buy apartment complexes, which are owned by typically people who, you know, some of them are kind of dumb, but you know, they have the wherewithal to go to a broker to sell their, you know, their several million dollar assets. So wholesalers just don't work in this world of commercial real estate. Um, where we get a lot of our deal flow is through brokers and brokers actually do their job unlike their residential real estate partners like you know the brokers will be the ones calling up sellers doing a lot of this hard work that you would think residential brokers do but residential brokers are just marketers right for Mm. homeowners for clients that way they don't do any job on the finding the sellers on that side but in the commercial real estate world they're hustling and they're doing that stuff and that's why for us you know they control the deals so we need to get in good relations with those brokers and you know, build up a track record. It's kind of what we've, we've done in our past to kind of get ourselves up to the top of those broker lists and get some of these off-market properties um, because, you know, they rather, you know, have a buyer like us buy it who's proven that they've closed in past deals. Mm-hmm. They don't really care about, you know, who gets the higher price. The buyers don't really care or the sellers don't really care who gets the higher price. They just don't want to go through a lengthy closing period and just figure out at the very end that the people that they're working with are just bunch of newbies who can't close hmm. makes sense makes sense so when you're, when you're dealing with, uh, with these complexes with multiple keys are these essentially turnkeys or are you gonna have to come in and put some money to, to renovate or to upgrade before you can actually turn it back to get a profit yeah kind of in between right like i mean we we will typically stay away from like you know really heavy value add type of projects hmm. um, we like to go with properties that 90 percent occupied or greater so that's kind of called stabilized assets so it's it's making money day one um, but there are some ability for us to rehab units you know nothing crazy um you know maybe put five grand into every unit but that's enough to do a big facelift you know to bump mm-hmm. the rents up a couple hundred bucks um, so that kind of includes like flooring new flooring new appliances new paint job some exterior improvements um you know cleaning up the clubhouse chain and then a lot of you know, behind the scenes stuff like with improving management, decreasing expenses, mm. bumping rents. But with that, you know, we're kind of, we don't go after distress assets per se, um, but we definitely do put a little bit of lipstick on a pig on these things and get it to that turnkey kind of what you're talking about. So it's kind of, um, we feel like it's, you know, I mean, your business plan can be whatever, right? But this is just ours, right? We're, we're taking sta- stabilized assets that aren't really optimized, get them to that next level, then sell it. Um, all the while cash flowing, right? Because you never know when the next recession is going to hit you. So, you know, we are at the end of the day, cash flow investors. And I think that's where what separates amateurs from the pros, right? You always want to be able to cash flow at any point in time so that you're always hitting your debt service coverage ratio so you can pay for the mm-hmm. debt service and hold on the asset at bad times. Yeah, it makes perfect sense. It makes perfect sense. So let's talk about you a little bit more. I mean, how did you get the, the, the nickname of being the rich uncle? Um, you know, I think what kind of frustrates me is that there's all a bunch of like bad financial advice out mm-hmm. there, right? Go, go to school, study hard. I mean, maybe we won't get into the whole is college a good idea or not, but definitely like a lot of the financial advice I was taught by my parents and just, you know, in the cubicle land, you know, invest in your 401k, um, invest in these retirement with mutual funds and, and buy a house to live in um, and then pay down your debt. You know, three things that I think are just misleading Americans and the hardworking folks out there that that's not what the wealthy do. Sure. That helps you keep out of debt. And like, you know, I guess maybe it is good for, the Dave Ramsey advice is good for most people. 
just to get to kind of square one to get, you know, because a lot of people in this country just need to keep a freaking budget or they need to make more money. But there are a subset of folks kind of that fall into our world you know, and kind of follow simple passive cashflow.com system and that are good with their money. You know, they put money into their retirement. They're good little boys and girls. They follow what the system tells them. But what they don't realize is putting your money into a lot of these retail investments, just exactly what the companies want you to do. They get all these heavy fees that are hidden. You don't see them. And then they essentially take your retirement system away from or your retirement away from you. Um, these retirement plans, I mean, for several reasons, I don't like them. I mean, like, they, supposedly they're, they're tax deferred. They are, right? But I would rather pay my taxes on it today because especially most of my clients, they're going to be in the lower tax bracket today than in the future when they're falling in the future. So therefore, you want to pay your taxes on today while you're in a lower tax bracket. Secondly, we all know where taxes are going. They're going up. So therefore, pay your taxes today. Don't pay it in the future. And this is what the government has kind of created, the system where they can essentially have a blank check and tax you whatever they want in the future at a later date. Thirdly, um, you know, you're not as flexible with these retirement funds. You can't go invest it in all kinds of stuff like real estate. I mean, you can do a self-directed IRA or self-directed Roth, but there's heavy fees in this type of stuff that kind of ticky tax your your gains away. And lastly, you know, maybe we could talk about taxes later on in this this uh, call. But you know, a lot of this is you know you want to invest outside of these insulated retirement accounts so you get things called passive losses. And this is the key thing why I invest in real estate. You get these great tax benefits to lower your adjusted gross income, especially if you implement a strategy called real estate professional on your taxes. A lot of real estate, like a lot of real estate investors don't pay that much taxes. And that's the name of the game, right? I mean, it's not so much about making so much returns. Hmm. You know, you can make a lot of money in crypto, but you got to pay a lot of taxes on that. A lot of the gains that you make in real estate are, offset completely you can kick the can down the road on stuff so i mean that's, that's another good segue to i mean like leveraging things like trade lines so i think you had did like a youtube video just talking about trade lines and how to, to leverage a trade line uh, and then make money from it so like just since we're in that topic let's dive into that a little bit yeah the trade lines are kind of like a little offshoot i mean it, for some of my guys it's a great way to make a little bit cash on the side five to ten grand um but you know basically you know when you have a credit card, you have a trade line, you can add authorized users on to it. Um, and then so there are brokers out there that can assign these trade lines out to other people in a semi safe um, way, where you can kind of essentially rent your trade line out. Um, you know, they never get the credit card, they should never charge anything on your account. But on their point of view, they get this trade line attached to their credit um, reporting system, they could bump their their credit score, which to them could mean thousands of dollars if you're trying to apply for a house and mm. they want to bump their score up from 650 to 750, for example. No, they, they pay you, you know, you, you know, 100, 200 bucks at a time. And they can add up $5,000, $10,000 a year. Um, great way to make a little money, right? If you don't have money. And well, everything I'm talking about, real estate investing, you need money to invest. Mm. If you don't have money to invest, you can't real estate invest, bro. You've got to do wholesaling, you've got to do flipping, go find a job or, you know, trade lines makes a, make, is a way to make a little bit of side cash. Um, it's a way, you know, the way I see it, it's all part of the journey, right? As your net worth grows, the strategies kind of change and the things that you're doing kind of change along the way. Okay. So let's just say someone starting out cold turkey and they say that they're fully employed. They say they're, they're at maybe 80,000 to 120,000 in, in their annual income would you say that they will take some of that assets that they have as far as the revenue per month and put that aside to build up enough to probably get 20,000 for a down for down payment? Or would you say to kind of leverage the credit line would be an opportunity for them to get capital a lot faster? Well, the two are just independent, right? I mean, the, the big thing, you can do whatever trade line you guys want to make a little side cash. But to me, as soon as you have twenty, thirty thousand $30,000, that's enough for a down payment on a rental property. Um, if you guys are getting started, I would, you know, you can download our free analyzer at simplepassivecashflow.com slash analyzer and go buy a hundred thousand dollar property with you know, 20, 30 down, um, 20% down payment. Um, you know, you're going to have to go get a, a lender, but they're pretty ubiquitous. Um, 
you can go to any Fannie Freddie Mac lender and get that great loan. Um, that's fixed thirty year fixed uh, rate, and you know that's that's kind of where it started. That's where I started in two thousand nine. You know, then I bought another, and then in two thousand and fifteen, I had eleven of these things. And then as your net worth grows, you know, especially as you become more of an accredited investor, then you get rid of the little run of properties because they are kind of a pain in the butt. But and then you step up to syndication deals as a passive best, and you kind of grow your, your net worth that way. Um, but it's all you know part of the journey, right? You know, if you, if your net worth is low, um, but you got some money, you know, you got to get on the escalator as soon as possible. But if you're in credit card debt and you know you can't seem to spend more than you make, which is most people out there, then go follow the Dave Ramsey advice out there. But as soon as you you've got your you know, your handles on your finances. You know, get rid of that Dave Ramsey, Susan Orman advice, and get on the simple passive cash flow bandwagon. Hmm. Very, very, very interesting. So let's talk about you for, for, for a minute here. If you could define yourself in three to five words, what three to five words would you choose to define you? So analytical, um, calculated, and um, I don't know, I just make small progress every day. You know, like, you know, don't take chances. Hmm. So you're risk adverse. So, I mean, being being on, on that on that spectrum, right? I mean, obviously on your journey to get to where you are, you had to overcome a lot of different hurdles and, and you probably experienced a lot of pushback. So in that time frame, what is the worst experience of possible pushback or negativity did you experience on your ride? I mean, as far as investing goes, you know, I always invest in things like cash flow positively. So like kind of it's not really ups and downs. It just takes a really freaking long time. I mean you know, like when I was getting paid like six figures, um, full six figures, you know, out of college, I mean, it was just, I just had to save the money. You know, like I said, save 20, 30 grand, you buy a rental property. That was the hard part. It's just, it just takes a while. It's kind of like watching grass grow, but after a while you hit that hockey stick inflection and kind of just goes up. I would say my, my hardest parts were, you know, when I started to transition from buying my own rental properties to going into deals, as a passive investor, you know, you don't know who to trust. And sometimes you step on some landmines and you meet some unscrupulous people. And, you know, I've lost my money. I mean, I kind of chronicle it at, on my website at simplepassivecash.com slash fail. If you want to read all about that debacle where I lost four grand um, doing that. Um, but, you know, that, you know, it's just kind of staying away from the wrong people is the main thing after a certain point, especially as a credit investor. Interesting. So, I mean, you talk about passive uh, investment versus active investment. So, like, just define that for, for the listener. Like, what is the differences between them and what's the benefits? Yeah. So, active investing is what you do when you don't have too much money. You got to trade your sweat equity for money that you lack, that you don't have. So, those kinds of activities would be, you know, being a property manager, being um, wholesaling, flipping houses, um, being um, but you want to get on the train of being a passive investor as soon as possible. Now, being, you know, owning little rental properties, you have a property manager kind of doing your dirty work for you that you pay 10% of the rents to approximately. But you're still, you know, managing the managers, semi-passive. Mm -hmm. Not until you begin, you step into the LP passive role in the large syndication, do you become truly 100% passive. Still, you have to do diligence and finding deals, right? But, you know, a lot of that can be done from your boxers at your home computer. Um, but that's kind of the spectrum, you know, the passive investing sounds really cool, but you need money to do that. Right. So for a lot of my clients like that have successful businesses and high paid jobs, they realize that, uh, you know, their jobs, their hourly rates a lot higher than digging around being a wholesaler flipper, that type of stuff. And that's what it comes down to. It's like everybody listening needs to figure out what is your highest and best use. If you're starting out, you probably can't make much more than $100, $200 per hour doing whatever you're doing. But if you're a doctor, dentist, business owner, you might be making $500,000, several thousand dollars an hour. Mm -hmm. it, it just it just makes no sense to be looking around for distressed houses, walking the neighborhood, right? I mean, everybody's on different ends of the spectrum. Mm -hmm. And you need to identify and really have self-awareness of where you are at. We all need to trade time for money. None of us was like born with money. I wasn't born with money. But you need to figure out where you're at and then figure out what's your highest and best use for your time. And trade time for money in that highest multiple and just let time be your friend. And this is not a get rich quick thing, but you need to figure out what that is and go all in on that. So maybe it's your business, right? Mm -hmm. 
who knows? Or maybe it's your job. I'm not a huge fan of J-O-B's jobs, but you know, for a lot of high income earners, it, just suck it up and do it for maybe five, 10 years. And you'll kind of earn your way. And if you parlay your money into past investments, you can eventually go financially independent during that way. That's interesting. So, I mean, with, with that business structure, right? I mean, obviously you talk about there's different levels of business and you kind of kind of start out, maybe you have no LLC, then you grow into LLC, then potentially into S-Corp and probably a C-Corp. So what kind of structure do, is your business set up as right now? It, to me, the legal structure has really nothing to do with anything. I mean, it's all based on like how much revenue and profit you're making. Mm-hmm. I mean, you can have a gazillion rental properties and just do it as a sole proprietor. That's just the entity structure. That's just asset protection. It's a separate topic. But it's basically, to me, the way I look at it is like, how much profit are you making from your endeavor? And then how much, your, what's your personal net worth? If your personal net worth is negative or under a quarter million dollars, you need to probably take a good look at your stuff. And is it, are you self-inflicting this damage to yourself, right? Are you not, do you not have a budget, right? Those guys, you know, I mean, yeah, follow the Dave Ramsey's type of stuff, right? But you know, if you're somewhere between zero and half a million, I think this is the point where time is not really valuable to you at this point. Hmm. You need to be trading sweat equity for money and get yourself to above half a million, million dollars net worth. At that point, typically for most people, um, the way the hourly rates work out, like your time is more valuable than money. This is the time where you need to be employing other people to do what you're doing or focusing more on those higher hourly rate tasks for your business or if that's your job um, or put it into passive investing at that point um, but yeah there's you know there's different phases of this and to me i think it's i you know i kind of consult with individuals right who range from um, you know they're, they're entrepreneurs all the way and, and a lot of them are just employees high-paid employees high-paid professionals and to me it's mostly more on the personal side where where's your network Give me your net worth and what your adjusted gross income is, and I can kind of fit you what your strategy is. Hmm. That's interesting. I mean, leaving off on that, that keyword of strategy, and I think in one of your other videos, you were talking about like buying particular properties in, in regional locations. And I think in the video you were talking about, in the early days, you were buying properties in Washington, but nowadays you would not buy properties in Washington because of like the retail value. So, like, just talk about that. So, like, how are you particularly searching for properties to buy and what regions are you looking to buy? Yeah, I mean, those first several years, those first several properties when I was buying in Seattle, Washington, I just didn't know any better. You know, like, I, I as an investor, I think a lot of people think, oh, you should buy where you live. Uh, there's an internet nowadays, you know, you don't need to live where you, you know, buy where you live. Um, invest where the numbers make sense. And typically, that's not where you live. Um, we like to focus on states that are more red because we are the landlords and we're in the landlord role as a, as a property owner. And we want to be in locations where the, the laws are typically on our side. Mm-hmm. Secondly, we want to be in population growth areas and, and locations where the economic growth is heavy. So these are a lot of, you know, you know this is a lot of the Sunbelt states. This is where the population is going. So Arizona, Texas, Alabama, Florida, places like that is typically the places we'll eye, right? That kind of fill mm-hmm. those two criteria. Um, these are not the places like California, Seattle, New York, Boston. And, you know, just for folks at home, like, you know, something we look at very closely from a high level is the rent to value ratio. Um, we want to be able to be going into an asset that we can buy at, a, you know, take the monthly rents divided by the purchase price and we want to look at for 1% or higher. So, for example, you know, a $100,000 house. You know, we wanted to rent for a thousand bucks. So, because one thousand divided by hundred grand is one percent, and you know, for people that live in California, you'll be lucky to find a place in the ghetto for five hundred grand that rents for twenty five hundred a month. Mm-hmm. Twenty five hundred divided by twenty twenty fifty dollars, yeah, to five hundred thousand dollars is half a percent. That's not going to work, right? That's less than that one percent threshold. So, with that in mind, you know, this is why we're kind of going to these secondary and tertiary markets. So, I mean, with that, I mean, are you guys touching into like mobile parks? It seems like based upon your numbers, it would think mobile parks would fulfill those requirements. Um, you know, that's just a different asset class. We've done that at one point. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, there's you know several different asset classes. For example, like, you know, multifamily apartments. There's class A, B, and C. There's self-storage. There's, like you said, mobile home parks. 
all these are different asset classes. And then this is the point where we kind of figured out where was our niche, where's our sweet spot. Mm-hmm. You don't want to, I think, and just like businesses, right? Like if you're a marketer, are you an SEO guy? Are you a pay-per-click guy? Are you just a, you know, make good creative, a good copywriter, right? There's all these different things under the umbrella of marketing. Um, you need to figure out what you're best at. And, you know, we've kind of figured out that we'd like our niche within the monthly family class B and C space, mm-hmm. you know, like the rentals that are kind of for the lower middle class folks, because we also like it because we feel it's very recession proof. Mm-hmm. Everybody needs a place to stay, especially like the middle class and lower middle class. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think, I think mobile home parks, they all fall under the umbrella of residential you know, housing and, especially with the lower income type of folks, which again, it's very recession proof in my opinion. I, I like the asset class. It's just as an operator, I need to kind of focus on one thing instead of being all over the place, right? Like I don't buy properties in all, you know, a dozen places. I kind of focus on, on a few mm-hmm. and build my teams there and build that competitive advantages in those locations and build those broker relationships in those locations. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I like I like to invest in things that, oh, what happens if there's a recession, mm-hmm. right? How does that perform? You know, for example, I don't like short-term rentals because if there's a recession, that stuff just goes, that's all discretionary spending. Um, I like stuff that, you know, is for the average lower middle-class guy and because as we've seen in the pandemic, where does all the assistance go, right? So yeah. it, the government cannot let real estate or the glut of America's population fall down. Yeah, and it makes. I mean, it's definitely logical sense when you put it in, put it in that that state of mind. So, I mean, with that, right? I mean, obviously, you've been on this journey for a, a period of time. Like, like the, the perception of you being an overnight success is, is live and well. Because somebody for the first time hearing you speak, it's kind of like this guy has everything that, that I want. He does everything by the book. He has all these systems in place. But in reality, how long did it take you to get to where you are currently? Yeah, I mean, I started bought my first rental property in two thousand nine, and then I saved my money, and then. I bought the next duplex, I think, a year and a half later, 2012. And just, you know, I just kept buying in more and more properties. In 2015, I had 11 of these things. So, I mean, you guys can plot the graph at home. And, you know, it's, it's, it's a slow grind in the beginning. Mm-hmm. But the cool thing is, after a while, if you keep your personal expenses low, you, you know, you keep those, you keep being frugal. After a point in time, your money works harder for you than you work for your money. And this is the, this is why like paying off your, your debts, your primary residence, you know, stuff like they normally teach you, right? Is, is not really aligned with financial freedom and growing your network. You need every dollar you have needs to be leveraged, pulling in more dollars and growing your portfolio. Then once you hit a certain inflection point, when is enough is enough, then maybe you pay down some debt, I guess, but that's not what businesses do. And that's not what governments do, right? They use leverage as their friend. That's the biggest part of this. You want to grab as much good long-term debt as possible, mm-hmm. especially with inflation being right where it's at. So you're talking about on the tail end, like obviously the compounding effect of, of the hockey puck, you know, shooting up through the roof. So potentially you say you had 11 properties and right now you're talking about you have a, a billion dollars in assets on the management. So how many keys is that currently that you have access to? I think like 7,700 plus. That's crazy. I mean, from 11 to almost 8,000, that's, that's like a 90 day difference within a decade. That's crazy. Yeah. Well, I mean, after a while, you kind of hit the syndication model, right? Which is kind of going nuclear, um, you know, bringing in other folks along. Um, but the, the, the thing at the end of the day is like net worth, right? What's your personal net worth? You do, you drive that number. Sophisticated investors, they don't care about, how much debt they're carrying. They especially don't care about the interest rate that they're paying. And if you notice a lot of regular people out there, they're freaking out. Or, you know, they're like, oh, I got 3.6% on the mortgage, right? I'm better than 5%. It's not what the sophisticated investors do. They pay attention to two big things. First, what is their net worth doing? Mm. If they refinance that, that asset and they couldn't take the money out to go buy two or three more assets, their net worth is not growing. That's what they're really looking at. And of course, they want to also look at cash flow. I mean, cash flow is sort of king, but I mean, it's not really king, but it does keep you alive in a recession. It's the oxygen. So you always want to have an ample amount of cash flow in case of rough times coming, but you always want to be pushing on that net worth. 
very, 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 very detailed and, and interesting as well, too. So with the inside of that, right, I mean, obviously, you have a very detailed persona about the way you do, you're defining what you're doing in real estate. And I want to know, like, does that come from like any body in your family? Is your mom or your dad, any of them uh, entrepreneurs by any means? No, I mean, they're just working stiffs. They, you know, like nobody in my family were credit investors. Nobody were entrepreneurs. Nobody even owned rental property in my family. Um, mm-hmm. This was, it took me a long time to figure all this stuff out. And I was just kind of lucky enough to find other high net worth credit investors. And I, I just shut up and I listened. And what I realized is a lot of the things that the wealthy do, you know, especially with taxes and investments and, you know, how they do things legally with their entity structures, it's not that hard to recreate, but it is very counterintuitive than what, you know, your, your parents tell you, which, you know, your, your friends and family or your coworkers do. It's a complete opposite, which is, um, and that's what's frustrating for me, right? And that's what we talk, we educate people on my podcast. What are the wealthy do? And because there's so much dogma out there that people just blindly say like, Oh, I don't want to rent because renting is throwing money down the tubes. And eh, completely wrong, right? This is your rich uncle here. That person doesn't know what the heck they're talking about, right? Never take financial advice from people who are not financially free or don't, certainly don't have a much, much higher network than you, right? I don't know why people listen to their, their family or friends. Like, I mean, numbers don't lie, right? And all I tell people is, well, let go of these preconceived notions these financial dogma that you hear all the time and just really start to think about it and the numbers will tell you what to do right if you take you know if you go slower and paying down debt and you take that money and you go buy more and more investment properties put it on a spreadsheet scenario it out where is your net worth going to be in 5 10 15 years it's plain as day day yeah, yeah, I mean, you, you're definitely you're talking very logical sense, and and I, and I want the, the listener that's listening to this. I mean, obviously, he's talking about a situation to where making your money work for you versus you're you're looking at your nine to five and you're working your hourly things. It's like how do you compound your cash flow and then take that cash flow and buy more assets? I mean, essentially, everything we're talking about right here is just assets, 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 and compounding that over a period of time. So, like going into like my next question, I mean, obviously, you're talking about not listening to family, not listening to friends. You're saying that you know both your parents were not entrepreneurs entrepreneurs but how does that affect you now as far as like you know do you have a family and if you do how do you currently juggle like your work life with your family life um and we hire employees that are probably more technically sound than myself um, i think that's the point maybe you, you know once you get your your business going and maybe pass i don't know like what revenue level that is but i think as soon as you have I mean, maybe that is, you know, once you are able to profit 50, 100 grand and get your own personal oxygen mask on to put your day job, if you still are doing that, and you're able to clear an extra 50, 100 grand of profit on top of that, you need to be hiring other people. Um, I think looking back at how I did this, like, I mean, I I hired the virtual staff first, right? Because they're not that expensive and they just help leverage your time. But as soon as you can clear the next 50, 100 grand after that, you need to be hiring other people that, like, you know, the chief operating officer or operators that kind of take roles away from you. Essentially, you're trading your lower dollar hourly rate tasks, and you're going to focus on the things that are really going to drive your business forward, which is typically for the business owner, business visionary, which is business development, you know, more deals in our world or, you know, more partners, you know, maybe in other businesses or other marketing needs. And a lot of operations and the the customer fulfillment stuff falls to your employee and staff, which of course you have to train in and create SOPs for. But that's how things kind of really get moving. It's just, you have to kind of multiply yourself. If not, I mean, I kind of stayed in that role for a long time. Again, you know, I don't have anybody teaching me this stuff, right? I mean, there's a lot of podcasts and books. Um, but, you know, everybody's situation is different, right? And, and I think that was one of the things. I did hire a coach and it was nice to finally get somebody to say, yeah, you know, you're doing a good job, but what are you doing, man? You got to hire some people, you know? Um, and sometimes if you don't pay a coach, you don't listen to anybody, right? So yeah. when I pay when I pay somebody, I tend to listen to them and, get, and pay them respect and follow what they say they're going to do. But yeah, I don't regret it, you know, I think. But it comes at a certain point, right? You know, profit, profitability level. Once you have that, air, you know, 
Olympic weightlifting, right? Like speak mm-hmm. here. Once you get that bar up, you get a little room under the bar. You got to go for it, man. Once you're a business owner and you get that 1500 G's of profit, you know, have a nice dinner, but like hire people. Makes perfect sense. So, I mean, with that, I mean, you're very structured, you're very systematically uh, approaching to these answers. So like my next question is, what is your morning habits, your morning routines, being that you're so such a systematic guy? Um, I don't have any routines. I'm, I'm totally unstructured with that stuff. I, I don't sit down and meditate for five minutes and do my journal again. I think that's kind of silly doing the journal again and again and again. I mean, think about it as an entrepreneur business owner, you really only have four to six hours of good solid working time. That can stick around with, you know, a good 5%, 10% of that time. It's silly. To, um, I go in, I, I put out some fires, but um, lately it's been changing because we've been hiring more staff, so I have to do this less and less. But um, yeah, I mean, just just kind of go about my business. Um, again, the other day, I, I try not to get really, I don't, I don't fix my bed, you know. Like, yeah. I, I, I guess what I'm what I'm saying is like, look, do whatever works for you. Try different stuff out. Um, see what works for you. For me, it's like, oh, yeah, none of this stuff really does it for me. So I'm just going to keep trying different stuff and being my structure. Nice, nice. So I think this is Lisa. I think you, you alluded to books a little bit. You know, you actually have an ebook, and I think one of your podcast episodes you were talking about books of recommendation. So this first question out of these books, uh, it's like, what book did you read? Like coming from being um, an engineer, becoming an entrepreneur, that kind of helped you transition between those two. Well, I didn't really read any books, right? Like I kind of fell into this accidentally, right? I bought that first rental and then I just started renting out with a property manager and kind of just trusted them, right? And it worked. And real estate investing can be pretty passive and you can get going with that and then learn along the way. Um, Yeah, you know, I follow like the semi-2010 rule and I got this when I was working in corporate America where... Ten percent is academic stuff that you're learning, so that's podcasts, books. It's a very small minority of the whole. Twenty percent is getting people around you, right? Mentors, peers, going back and forth. But seventy percent of this is doing it, getting out there and doing it. And I think most people they don't realize it. That's that's my. I mean, that's how I got started by doing it, just doing it, buying a rental property, putting somebody in there, and just working the problem is that they come up um, but you know you're gonna if you're gonna twist my arm you know at that once i owned the rental property then i read you know millionaire real estate investor by gary keller i always recommend that one that was a nice good read but i would say you know get your head out of the podcast the book scene after a while and just kind of do it guys i mean you're just kind of wasting time i think a lot of people they want to take action but they there's more times going after the warm and fuzzy feeling Mm-hmm. which we call shelf help and they just want to feel make, make themselves feel like they're making process but they're really not doing any they're not moving the football down the football field at all yeah yeah i definitely hear you. i mean i could definitely see how uh, some people they could take that content but they take no action and that's the that's the usual problem right and they're hearing all this information but they're not taking action on the information that they're they're receiving so i mean with that you're, you're mentioning something about time so where do you see yourself and your business 20 years from now um i mean what i think i was thinking the other day when i'm like 60 something plus which i don't think is 20 years away i think i still got another 25 years from then but i don't want to be doing too much of anything maybe um <laughs> that's a long time from now man like i don't know if i'm gonna be doing this for another five or ten years i mean i think the main thing is get your get your network up to a certain point most people, it's four to five million dollars because you could put it into some some kind of halfway decent investment, make 10, 15 percent, and be able to live off the cash flow if 10, 20,000 dollars a month is adequate for you. Again, this is all you know based on what your needs are and how you design your lifestyle. Basically, how, how fancy of a wine budget do you want? Um, but I say define that point, define end game first. Because it's silly to kind of keep working, and you know, I, I guess people trick themselves into thinking like, "Oh, I like this. Like, I need to always be working." 
well, define your end game first, and then go in as a you know, goal oriented first, and then get to that point, and then really ask yourself the question. But most people, they, they, they just kind of blindly keep working and working and working. You never know when mm-hmm. this is going to end. Nice. <clears throat> so I think earlier on you were talking about your ideal avatar, I mean, the people that you're, you're working with. And I want you to kind of de- 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 define that. Like you, earlier you said you have two sides to a coin. You have people that are p- potentially people that are getting paid well in corporate America. And then you got people that, that are wealthy. But ideally, who is your ideal avatar that you would want to work with or partner with? Um, I mean, so our idea avatar is some, you know, somebody who has a accredited investor. Um, they are typically above the age of forty because you know, net worth is more about time, really. But somebody who's maybe exited a business or just you know been a high paid professional making multiple six figures for a decade plus, saving their money. You know, these are the people that we can make the biggest gains with, and especially because for those high, higher net worth people, when your net worth gets over $2 million, it's more about taxes than investing. And that's why real estate to me is, that's why I invest in real estate. I don't particularly like real estate, but it's the one thing that gives me all these great tax benefits to pay less, lower my adjusted gross income, and pay less taxes. Or use passive loss to offset passive so I mean, you mentioned accredited investor a couple of different times. So for the for the average listener, let's define that. Like, what's the difference between a standard investor and accredited investor? There's no test to take, um, and the definition kind of changes from time to time. You can just Google it, but it's essentially an investor that has a million dollar net worth or greater, or makes over two hundred fifty thousand dollars a year. So some people would think that that person is a pretty wealthy person. Um, some would differ, right? <laughs> like, but you know, you just definitely can't be a broke guy, right? Makes sense. So let's go into like final words of wisdom. If you have an opportunity to speak to your ideal avatar right now and they're they're hitting their hurdle or they say they're just sitting on two to three million dollars and they're trying to figure out their next move, what words of insight would you give to them? Find somebody that's done this before and then follow them and build an organic relationship with them. Um, and that's a that's the thing, right? Like a lot of these kinds of circles that we fall we were in, they're more country club deals. It's more about like your your network is your network. Ninety nine percent of the people out there are kind of outside the circle. They're in the the mainstream retail investment market, and they just don't know. <laughs> um, it'd be silly to pull your your peer group because likely ninety nine percent of them are broke, and they have these other set of ideals and things they follow. But, you know, I think there are YouTube videos out there, right, where they, they find, like, a, a really rich person and build this house and say, well, how did you make your money? That's not a bad way of doing it. You know, I mean, certainly you don't want to walk up to strangers on the street. But in terms of finding people who've done this before and taking advice from those people. And, again, I think maybe I said this earlier, but never take financial advice from people who are not financially free themselves. Hmm. Perfect sense. So how does someone find you? I mean, like, do you have a website, social media? Like, what's the ideal platform? Yeah, they can check out the websites at theclassiccashflow.com. We've got a lot of free guides on there. And then if you guys are podcast people, they can go to Simple Passive Cash Flow, Passive Real Estate Investing on iTunes and Google Play. And then uh, they can also, like, you know, find us on YouTube. We've got the, the Rich Uncle channel, which is more geared towards, you know, the younger guys, um, you know, trying to get started. Whereas I, I think the... The podcast is more geared towards their credit investors these days. Mm-hmm. Makes perfect sense. So going into bonus round, right? I, I got this bonus question that that I'm pretty interested to see what you're going to say. And I think I already know the answer, but I'm going to ask it anyway, right? If 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 money was not a particular thing that, that you're striving for, would you still be doing what you're doing right now? Um, I don't know. <laughs> Honestly, don't know. I ask myself this question all the time. I definitely think it's about impact. Mm. I mean, you start to you start to really ask when money's not an issue anymore. You start to ask, well, why do you do anything? Why are we all here? Mm. Um, you know, from from one point of view, I kind of see money as kind of like a a score on the pinball machine. How to be able to play pinball or video games, right? To rack up the score Just for shits and giggles. Um, but, you know, I think what's kind of cool, what I enjoy is, you know, I, I interact with people and, you know, people sign up for the group, we, you know, 
I, I have a call with them and I just kind of see their situation and I kind of move this, move that. Um, but like, you know, just if I'm able to impact somebody and, you know, in a positive way, I mean, I think, I think that's, to me, that's very um, engaging and enriching for me, especially if people are open-minded to this type of stuff and they get it and they've kind of done a little work on themselves and they just need that person to say, yeah, man, get rid of that stupid 401k. Who the hell told you to do that? Or tell me why it makes sense. You know, like, or yeah, stop paying off your mortgage. You know, of course, pay, pay minimum, minimum payments, of course, right? So you don't get foreclosed on, but yeah, man, take the extra payments and the equity and go invest it in other things. You know, not many people have the, the, the real like words of wisdom in their ears telling them to do this stuff. And that's kind of what I provide because I've been there, been there, done that. Whereas, unfortunately, they've got the 99% of the wrong advice out there being bombarded on them. Um, taking money out of 401k. You know, some people feel like it's like a sin. It's naughty or something like that. <laughs> oh, but I'm like, well, just run the numbers, man. You know, like, tell me why it makes even make sense. You know? Nobody yeah. has ever told me that. Well, so that leads me into like a next bonus question, right? So with all your achievements that you've accomplished just in the last decade or so, maybe last 15 years, what is the most significant achievement that you've accomplished to date? Um, I like it when people finally quit their jobs, you know, doing this type of stuff. You know, I mean, of course, they put in a lot of the hard work. Or not, it's not really that hard to be a passive investor, but they put themselves out there, right? They, they got off the beaten path when all their friends and family, you know, maybe they, didn't, they probably didn't tell their friends and family what they were doing. Um, but they followed this course of path with bravery and they kind of walked this path that I did and, you know, they, they quit their jobs or, you know, maybe they implement real estate professional status strategy and their spouse stays at home with the kids and they make more money because they're able to you know, save more on taxes than they made. I mean, it's a beautiful thing when you actually start to educate yourself on how the way taxes and money works. And it can definitely change families' trajectories. Yeah, definitely. So going into the last question, if you could spend 24 hours with anyone, right, dead or alive, uninterrupted for those 24 hours, who would it be and why? I don't know. I, I mean, it wouldn't be for any for business. I just like to go to some basketball game or some Super Bowl game something like that or just hear what happens some behind the scenes at some sporting event you know that's mm -hmm. that's really all i'd like to do it's you know more for like check the box and some experiences you know um i feel like i i, I don't know if it, it getting insight from these like gurus like elon Musk of the world like will do me any good because they're so out of touch in reality at this point mm -hmm. and they're like several rungs past where I'm at, they've forgotten the stage of where I'm at, you know? And, and I think this is like the problem. People idolize people who are way, way high, but I think they lack the foresight to go after the guy who's just half a step above them or even two steps above them, which is more practical. Hmm. And that's, it's going to help a lot more. I mean, I, I don't like these YouTube videos where there's like some clickbaity things from Steve Jobs. You know, I'm sure Steve Jobs is an amazing, smart guy yep. in, his, in his heyday, but like really everything that those guys say is so high level. Like all these masterclass things, like it's just so high level and esoteric to me, even to me. Yeah, but I mean, from your, your standpoint, I mean, obviously, like you're saying that you're at a particular level and Steve Jobs at another level, but there may be someone that's, to your point, like probably several steps below you that's reaching out to, to, to kind of understand the way you speak and understand the way you process things. But to them, you may seem to be a god, right? So, I mean, it's always another level, but it's always someone below that level, always looking up to someone. Yeah, yeah. But I think that the thing is, if somebody's a several steps above you, mm -hmm. There really is no reason that why they would want to help you, <laughs> you know. Like, like everybody says, "Oh, find the mentor, find a mentor, find a mentor." But like, what mentor who's legitimately a mentor would want to waste their time with you? I mean, I guess there's some people who would really like, you know, philanthropic of your time, but 
I don't know any person who values their time would, would like to help out with somebody who is still on square one that really hasn't put in the work quite yet. Yeah, that makes sense. And for you, you're looking for people that, one, they have some money to play with, or at least they have the drive and motivation to get that money to then make that investment. Because what you're talking about is not like the normal level. It's not the go buy and flip. It's not the buy one thing and then just eat off the revenue for the next 10, 20 years. You're talking about scale and how to scale rapidly and quickly as well. Yeah. Like, I mean, if you're, if you're trying to talk to a mentor that makes, you know, $2 million profit every year, he doesn't want to talk to some guy who's making $20,000 a year, right? I don't know. Maybe he would, or maybe he'd be, he'd be okay talking to a guy making 200,000 a year. Right. Um, I, I think that there's some, I just say that because they, you know, this stuff kind of goes out and then people are like, well, you know, it's the 13 year old kid trying to get a phone call with the CEO of the company. That's just silly. That's just silly to me. Hmm. And there's gotta be some value add for the person. I mean, if not, they don't respect their own time. And if so, why are they there in the first place? You know? Yeah. Yeah. It makes perfect sense. I mean, I think you definitely let, let us with a lot of different things to think about. I mean, obviously people understand real estate to a certain extent, but again, the way you're defining real estate and the way you're talking about it, it's a different terminology is a different beating path that most people don't comprehend. So I definitely appreciate you being on the show today to give some light into that area of expertise. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if not, there's, you know, there's a whole bunch of free stuff on the internet, right? I mean, I tell people to start off there first and put in effort and then go after some people that are a little bit ahead of you. Yep. Yeah. Well, I think you did it. I mean, like you said, you, you went from one to 11 to damn near 8,000. And you did it within a decade. So it, it's definitely a, a real thing that could be achieved if you just apply yourself. Yeah. Yep. Well, I, I definitely appreciate you coming on, on the podcast today, Lane, man. I think you definitely dropped a lot of golden nuggets, a lot of things for people to think about, man. I appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Right. See everybody. All right. S.A. Grant, over and out. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Boss Uncage. I hope you got some helpful insight and clarity to the diverse approach on your journey to becoming an Uncaged Trailblazer. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, review, and share the podcast. If this podcast has helped you or you have any additional questions, reach out and let me know. Email me at ask at sagrant.com or drop me your thoughts via a call or text at 762 762- 233-BOSS. That's 762-233-2677. I would love to hear from you. Remember, to become a boss in cage, you have to release your inner beast. S.A. Grant, signing off. Listeners of Boss and Cage are invited to download a free copy of our host, S.A. Grant's insightful ebook, Become an Uncaged Trailblazer. Learn how to release your primal success in 15 minutes a day. Download now at www.bossuncaged.com forward slash free book.